Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Gotta keep it 300 with you this week. I am not in the best of moods. There's just been so much death lately. Right before I sat down to record this podcast, I was doing last minute sweep of of social media and news sites to make sure I was catching most of everything. And I saw Shock G from Digital Underground had passed away. And I was just like, another one? You know, we're fresh off the deaths of of DMX and, and Black Rob. May they rest in peace. I don't think I spoke about their passings on previous episodes just because there's there was so much going on, charge it to my, my head, not my heart, as the church folk like to say. God, like, so many of the, the entertainment fixtures from my youth are, are gone and so young. Like, it's not lost on me that these are men in their, what, late 40s, early 50s that are passing away. I don't remember the first time I saw the video for Humpty Dance, but I remember doing it in my parents' basement. I remember I had this huge crush on Shock G and I thought Shock G and Humpty were two different people just because he put on that fake nose and glasses. I was a kid. And I remember in the song, there was the line, I once got busy in a Burger King bathroom and they used to censor Burger King. Major corporations didn't want to be affiliated with hip hop back then. Now any corporation would pay good money for a shout out on a major hip hop song. But back then, not so much. I can't believe Shock G is gone. Gorgeous man. Without the humpty nose and the glasses, of course. But he was um, a good looking guy. May he rest in peace. Yo, black men, I know there's not a lot of black men listening. It's mostly, it's mostly women. For the black men who are listening, for the black women who have black men in their lives, I'm not telling you to take care of them, but I'm telling you to tell them to take good care of themselves. Like the idea that, that black men are, are passing at 50, which used to sound so old, but now it's like, what, nine years away from me? Closer to eight, to be quite honest. There's so much life left to live. A lot of men are just making it, barely, and not making it beyond. We're talking about death. While we were awaiting the verdict for the George Floyd trial, which... You know, I said last week, like, I I was nervous about an acquittal, and I told you why, because it's America. But Derek Chauvin, who was on trial, not George Floyd, I think I misspoke a few moments ago, he was found guilty of all charges, which I was shocked. I really, really thought that he could possibly get off. And and apparently, 
a lot of people did because they started boarding up buildings in LA in case he was acquitted and inevitable riots broke out. They didn't want to see all their windows smashed again. So those boards are still up. They didn't take them down yet. When I heard the verdict, I didn't have the sense of relief, I guess, that I thought I would. I definitely wasn't happy because a man is dead. So even though Chauvin might have been found guilty, like this is not justice to me. And it's also a fluke in the system. It's very rare that a white officer shoots a black person and is even charged, but much more found guilty. It usually goes the other way. I also just know that if there hadn't been so many people there with their cameras recording the murder, if, if Chauvin hadn't kneeled on his neck for over nine minutes, which was just inhumane, if George Floyd hadn't been calling out for his mother, if there hadn't been worldwide protests, he probably wouldn't have been convicted. Very recently, I was reading the first, I don't know if it was a police report, but bulletin or statement um, that the police made about George Floyd's death before we saw the video and before we knew his name. But it was very like run of the mill, like, you know, police responded to an incident and, um, you know, apprehended suspect and he was distressed and he died during the arrest. And it was very open and shut. It wasn't until the video came out that it was like, oh, there's, there's a little more to this story. But had there not been, you know, all of the things that I mentioned, not just one or two of them, but all of them, Derek Chauvin would have gone free to, to kill a third person because George Floyd was his second. I just couldn't be happy about that verdict. But while we were waiting for the verdict in Columbus, Ohio, police shot four times a 16-year-old girl, Micaiah Bryant, I have not watched the video. I've told you several times I make a point of not watching videos of black people being murdered. I've been avoiding the news specifically to avoid seeing these videos. But Micaiah Bryant, she, um, she called the police for help. She said some girls were outside her house and, and they were trying to jump her. By the time police officers arrived on the scene, she was out of the house. Apparently she was fighting with the girls or about to fight with the girls. From what I've read, there were plenty of people outside recording the incident, including adults that weren't breaking up the, the fight or the about-to-be fight between these girls. When the police showed up, Micaiah had a knife in her hand, and she was about to stab another teenage girl. And the officer saw her, and he fired four shots into her chest, killing her. I've seen a lot of really fucked-up commentary about Makai's killing, people keep pointing out that, you know, well, she had a knife, so, you know, what else was the officer supposed to do? And if it was your child that she was getting ready to stab, then you'd want the officer to shoot her too. And you know what, maybe if I was the mother of that other girl, I, I'd feel that way. I'm not the mother of that other girl, so I don't. It just doesn't sound right to me to say that a 16-year-old deserved four shots in the chest Knife or no knife. It just, I can't fix my mouth to say it. It's, it there's got to be another way. And up and down my timeline on Facebook are, are all kinds of social workers and therapists who've worked in juvenile facilities or group homes. And they're like, do you know how many times I've broken up a fight that involved a knife and nobody got shot? All the teenagers live to see another day and the cops can't do this? Really? I don't know what the solution is there. Like, I mean, maybe a warning shot a taser. That didn't work out so well for Dante Wright. But if the officer in this case could have actually grabbed a taser instead of a gun, maybe we wouldn't be 
mourning the loss of, of a 16-year-old. It's also not lost on me that in following these conversations about Micaiah, that many people say protect black women, but when it actually comes to protecting black women, or even, I don't know, showing empathy to black women, black girls even, there's just not a lot of it to go around, even from other black women, but especially not from, from a lot of black men. The commentary about Micaiah Bryant has just been awful. Just absolutely awful. And it seems to be a trend. Like, I I noticed it around Sandra Bland. It was like, well, okay, she got pulled over and, you know, she was mouthing off at the officer. And, like, why didn't she shut the fuck up? Y'all sound like racist white folks when they talk about anything bad happening to any black man in a police encounter. Why didn't she just comply? Why didn't he just comply? Why was he committing whatever crime, misdemeanor or otherwise? But I feel very often that that's how a lot of black folks talk about black women when they have negative police encounters. Corinne Gaines, she was in a standoff with police right outside Baltimore and she was killed. She was a ride or die for her man, black chick, ride or die for black people, black chick. And the commentary on her wasn't like, oh my God, this poor woman, the police shouldn't have killed her. It was, why didn't she comply? They told her 50 million times to get up out the house. Why didn't she leave? Really? It's also not lost on me that people keep saying like, well, Micaiah Bryant, she had a knife and she shouldn't have had a knife and she should have stayed her ass in the house and she shouldn't have been fighting. And why was she in foster care anyway? But the police showed up and the officer fired four shots, killing her. But you know who they didn't kill? Remember that white boy? What's that little white boy's name? Rittenhouse out in Wisconsin. Folks have been outside protesting because of police violence. I don't remember exactly what incident that was in Wisconsin. Kyle, was that his name, Kyle Rittenhouse? But he was a state over. He crossed state lines with a semi-automatic weapon and he fired into the crowd, killing two people, injuring a third. And he walked down the street with that big ass gun because there are pictures all over the internet. And people were yelling to police. He shot people, he has a gun. They did nothing. His mama, who drove him to the event, drove him back home. The police apprehended him the following day. So he can show up with a semi-automatic weapon, kill two people, injure a third, and go home that night and go to sleep? But this little 16-year-old black girl with a knife? You can't figure out no other way to stop her than to shoot her four times? Dylan Roof. He went up at Mother Emanuel, and we talk about him a lot on here. He walked into a church, a black church, and you sat down and prayed with people. They prayed with you and they prayed for you. And then you got up and slaughtered them. And when the police came and found your ass with your weapon and all, they apprehended you alive. And one of the officers was so concerned for you, saw so much of your humanity, they wondered if you were hungry and took your ass by Burger King. You were apprehended alive and then fed. You showed up at the police station with a full belly. They saw your humanity, even though you just gone and shot up a church and you had a weapon on you. They didn't go in with guns blazing, firing without thinking. Your whiteness is your protection. They see humanity in that. They don't see that in my black ass or Micaiah's black ass or Dante Wright's black ass or George Floyd's black ass. People keep saying police need more training because they're just, they're trigger happy. They're trigger happy with black people. They figure it out when it comes to white folks. They figure out how to apprehend them alive. A 16-year-old black girl with a knife is dead. That's a lot. And then sitting around on social media, listening to people justify the killing of a kid. She had a knife. She shouldn't have had a knife. Let me tell you something. 
All these black men, this long list of black men, they get murdered by the police, they get beat by police. Black women carry their asses out on the front lines to march, to protest, wreak havoc, cause mayhem, vote, to protect mostly black men's black asses. Because we look at black men and we're like, That's my, that could be my son, that could be my nephew, that could be my father, that could be my uncle, that could be my husband, my boyfriend. Black men don't really seem to return the favor on this one. You don't look at this 16-year-old girl and say, that could be my little sister, that could be my niece, that could be my daughter. It's just like, oh, she's some girl over there. She shouldn't have had a knife. Yeah. Black men aren't returning the favor that black women do for them and protecting them and caring about them and trying to ensure that their asses can live to see another day. We see your humanity. I'm not always sure y'all see the same in us. And that's terrifying. Because as many black women, they kept their mouth shut. Do I want to say that? About George Floyd and his drug use and his pointing a gun at a pregnant woman's belly, his multiple felonies, because we looked at that tape and we were like, it doesn't matter all the stuff that he may have done before. He didn't deserve to die that way in that moment. We shut the fuck up about that. Dante Wright, he's a kid. He's a kid. I don't know if he was told by his white mom, if you encounter a police officer, you don't go reaching into the car. You don't go jumping into the car. You don't go running. I don't know if he was told that. He shouldn't have to been told that. But you got to tell that shit to black boys and biracial boys. Because you might want to be all technical and be like, oh, it's not biracial and the one drop rule is antiquated. White folks see them as black and they treat them as black. They need to be raised like they're black so they know how to navigate in the world. But we all shut the fuck up about him jumping back into that car and driving off. We all said he didn't deserve to die. She was reaching for a taser. She was reaching for a gun. He didn't have to be tased or shot. You had his address. You knew he had a warrant. You knew where he lived. Go pick him up later. We shut the fuck up about that. Y'all can shut the fuck up about this little girl and her knife. You can focus on her humanity and say that a 16-year-old girl should be somewhere doing hair videos on YouTube since she liked to do that. Instead, she's dead from four bullets in her chest and half the people on the internet are talking about, well, she shouldn't have had a knife. Really? Y'all can overlook that knife. Y'all can find the humanity in a child. It's a child. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. 
Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. And good news. We need some good news. Good Lord. <sighs> Erica Badu is the new face of Burberry for their spring campaign. She is 50. She looks fabulous. Every bit of fabulous. She's got these braids, these teeny tiny braids down to the middle of her thigh. I'm like, girl, you sat forever for that. Because I got like skinny ones, but they not tiny. And they braid them down to my ass and I cut them back up. But it takes 11 hours for that. But I was like, skinny braids down to your mid thigh? Sis, that's at least three days. That's at least three days. You better keep them things in forever. And I hate to do the takedown. Lord God. She better have an army of people. Otherwise, she's sitting there for two days taking them down too. But she looks fabulous. LeVar Burton, our favorite from many things, including Roots, but also Reading Rainbow. A lot of us grew up on LeVar Burton. But he will be joining Jeopardy as a guest host. He will be stepping in temporarily to replace longtime host Alex Trebek, who died last year. There's been a couple large vocal campaigns to get LeVar Burton as the new host, the permanent new host, to replace Alex Trebek, which I think would be lovely. I'm not a regular watcher of Jeopardy, but I like it when it's on. I'm not that bad at it. I'm not that good at it, but I'm not that bad at it either. I know all sorts of random factoids that I'm like, how do I even know that? But I would love to see him as the permanent host. Robin Roberts, Good Morning America. She will also be a host on the show. I haven't watched Jeopardy in years. I don't even know what channel Jeopardy is on. But I'll go ahead and find it to watch those two. Whoopi Goldberg is on the new cover of Variety. She looks amazing. Amazing. Somebody had the good sense. And somebody, I could have read the article and saw who did hair. Sorry. But somebody good on hair gave Whoopi some nice fluffy curly natural looking black hair. It looks, she looks so good. She looks so, so good. But this cover is celebrating the 30th anniversary of her winning the Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in Ghost. When Whoopi won that Oscar in 1991, she was the first black woman to receive an Oscar in 50 years. The only other person was Hattie McDaniel in 1940 for Gone with the Wind. That's crazy. You know what's also crazy? I know Whoopi Goldberg is an EGOT, so someone that has an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. In my head, I'd always thought that she had her Oscar for Seely in The Color Purple. She was good in Ghost. I mean, not to take anything whatsoever away from her Oscar, but she was phenomenal in The Color Purple. And it's even more phenomenal that it was her first film role before she did The Color Purple. I'm not sure she'd had an acting role. Don't quote me on that. But I always thought her Oscar was for The Color Purple. It really wasn't until I read Variety that I was like, oh shit, it's actually for Ghost. She was robbed on The Color Purple. Jesus. Another fun fact, there are only 16 people who are EGOT status. And there are only two black people. You know who the other black person is? John Legend. And nothing against John Legend. He's an incredibly, incredibly talented man. I don't know. I don't look at John Legend as like legendary accomplishments. And apparently I should because he's, he's EGOT status. Who knew? I mean, other than like, you know, a lot of other people, including John Legend. But I didn't know. I was kind of shocked when I read that. The issue, as much as it's celebrating Whoopi's first Oscar, 
is also an, a celebration of the upcoming Oscar awards, which I'm glad somebody said something because I totally forgot the Oscars were coming. But the Oscars take place on April 25th. This year's list of nominees for acting, there's 20 acting nominees and nine of them are people of color. This is the most diverse crop of contenders ever. So Whoopi's got some good things coming down the pipeline. She wants to do a movie about superheroes, middle-aged superheroes. She says since she's been a little kid, she's been obsessed with superheroes. Quote, they're all saving the earth all the time. But do you know who's really going to save the earth? Old black women. So she wants her superhero to be an old black woman, which I'm here for it. She's also preparing to reprise her role for Sister Act 3, which she and Tyler Perry are co-producing. In addition, she's producing the Emmett Till story. Has there ever been a film about Emmett Till? I'm sure there's been documentaries and such, but it struck me when we were all watching Lovecraft and Emmett Till's death was part of the storyline that I was like, I don't remember seeing Emmett Till's death in TV or film very often. Certainly not a film about his life story or even his mother's life story. Mm. Um, but I'm looking forward to that. Of her greatest achievement, Goldberg says, she is most proud that I'm still here. I didn't fade away. I didn't disappear. I'm still here and still here doing me. Congratulations to Whoopi Goldberg on her variety cover. I like to see black women celebrated for obvious reasons, but I like to see them celebrated while they're still alive. Don't wait till folks are dead and can't smell their flowers to start celebrating them. And good TV news. Did y'all watch the finale to Snowfall? I thought season three of Snowfall was one of the greatest seasons of television I had ever watched. Like the character arcs, plot, the, the script, like it just direction. It was, it was an amazing season of TV. Dare I say season four of Snowfall outdid its previous season, which I thought wasn't possible. The, the finale was amazing. In case you haven't watched the show, I implore you to go on Hulu and start back at season one and watch it all the way through. It's up there with The Wire. The Wire is my favorite TV series of all time followed by probably the West Wing. Snowfall just bumped the West Wing out of my number two spot. And I love the West Wing. I've watched the whole series, like all eight seasons, at least four times. I love that show. And you see, I'm, be, I'm very careful not to give anything away. I implore you, go watch Snowfall. Season one starts really slow. It's annoying. It took me a couple tries to get into Snowfall. But once the story starts rolling, my God, oh, it was so good. You know how good Snowfall is? Is that <laughs> I was talking about this in the comments on my Instagram page. We're rooting for a crack dealer to succeed at selling crack. And we get mad at the people who stand in his way. He wants to be the biggest crack dealer in the world, which he becomes. When people try to stop him from selling crack, the audience gets mad and wants them to die. Another example, one of the characters on the show kills a child. The child's parents seek revenge for their child being killed. We're rooting 
for the person that killed the child not to go to jail and not to be killed or held accountable by the parents of the dead child. Like we want them dead to protect the guy that killed the kid because that's how good the characters and the writing are on this show. We're rooting for a child killer and a drug dealer to win. Crazy, crazy. Oh my God, that finale was so good. My other favorite show is back on BET Plus, Bigger. I didn't get into it until late. I think I just started watching Bigger earlier this year, but it came out last year. It's so good. I don't know why BET has buried it on BET Plus. I'm like, this needs to be on network, y'all, so we can all access it easy. But they got me paying for BET Plus to watch Bigger. It's so good. It just came out earlier today. I watched, I binged four episodes, five episodes, and I don't want to give anything away. I won't give you any spoilers, but this season's theme is exes, which seems to be a theme on like a lot of shows. That was a theme on Queen Sugar this season too. But a lot happens when you start engaging with exes. So a lot of conversations about, uh, you know, forgiveness and moving through and awkward conversations and, and all of those things. So I can't wait to see how this plays out. But I will tell you the storyline with the real estate agent has me like feeling gooey and wonderful and like mini clapping at the screen. Like it's so good, it's so good, it's so good. Speaking of exes, I had an encounter with, one was an ex, and then the other is someone I used to date, like, I'm like 15 years ago, back in New York. I moved into my current building in the middle of COVID, and all the restaurants in the area were closed at the time, and this one closed and didn't reopen. So the space has been sitting vacant for quite some time. But the other day, I noticed there had been movement at the restaurant. They had repainted, painted a mural on the side of the building and they'd taken down the signs for the old restaurant. I'd walked by it a couple times, but then I walked by the other day and the name of the restaurant was on the window. There was an Instagram for the restaurant. So I went and looked it up and I was like, well, you know, like what kind of food are they doing? And you know, what kind of vibe is this gonna be? Cause the place looks really cute. And the picture of the owner popped up and I swear I, needed to dro- I nearly dropped my phone. It was this guy I dated, I was probably like 26, 28. I haven't seen him in years and years and years. But like literally, if I walk out the door from my new apartment and walk to the end of the block, that's where his restaurant is. Like, I don't know, 30 feet away, maybe. So I, I looked it up and I saw his picture and like, I was like, oh my God. So I had to look him up on Instagram because I knew him before Instagram existed. And I haven't seen or talked to him in all these years. So I followed him and DM'd him and was like, yo, your new restaurant is in my building. It's at the corner of my block. And he was like, that's what's up, you home? I was like, one, we picked up this conversation like we just spoke yesterday, like, and I haven't talked to you in like at least 10 years, at least. And then also the you home, and I was like, that's what we used to do like forever and a day ago. Like dude was always at my house. One of the things that I really liked about him back in the day is he's one of the few guys I dated who weren't constantly complaining about like how much I worked, cause he worked too. So like we would just beat each other's houses like on our laptops, on the couch, in our socks, happy as shit to be working and be with your person and no one's trying to tell you to stop working or pay attention to me or can we go do blah, blah, blah. It was just like, let me 
try to build what I'm trying to build and then like we could play later. That's also, I think, the reason it kind of fizzled out. I can't remember why we stopped talking. It was just sort of like we were and then we weren't. But I think we were both just too caught up in like building shit. He's also an entrepreneur. I went to my meeting, which <laughs> someday I'll tell you about that when the situation is resolved. I'm still pissed. And then I, I went by his place and we caught up. Like, I was like, this is crazy. But he has some, um, some really amazing plans for his new space. And then there's also another space directly across the street from that space that's opening as well. And that's also black owned. So I was like, oh, block about to be hot and popping this summer. Mm. Also, I got my first COVID shot. I, um, I signed up for Dr. B. Do you know what Dr. B is? It's this site that lets you know when places have leftover vaccines. So you can register with them and they'll send you a last minute text if there's a place near you that has last minute vaccines that you can take. Vaccines are available for everyone in LA, I think over 18. When I was looking for places on like the official LA site, it was like backed up until May that I would be able to get a vaccine. But I signed up for Dr. B maybe two weeks ago tops, but they sent me an alert at 10.15 and was like, can you get to XYZ by 11 o'clock? Cause we've got a vaccine for you. And I was like, shit. So I just dropped everything I was doing and drove over. It took all of maybe 20 minutes. But my arm is, my arm is sore as shit. My left arm, cause I'm right-handed. So I got it in my left arm, but it feels like someone just like punched the fuck out of me in my arm. It's swollen. It's really swollen. Like it's, it's like raised. I usually sleep on my left side, but I had to um, either sleep on my back or, or turn the other way because um, shit hurts. It, it really hurts. But otherwise I haven't really had any symptoms, a little fatigue, but nothing too crazy. I'm fortunate that like, if I get tired in the middle of the day, I can just go lay the fuck down, which I did earlier today. I took like a three hour nap. Um, but otherwise, I don't feel anything. So I go back in, what, three weeks to get my, my second shot. So then I can like travel, then I can go home. I don't even wanna like run the streets. I just wanna like travel again and like not be afraid to die in an airport. So I had another quote unquote encounter with an ex recently. I wrote about it on Facebook and it went viral. If you wanna read the full exchange, you can read it on my Facebook page. But I dated this guy over 20 years ago and good dude, didn't have a bad breakup, just wasn't the right thing for me at the time. So we've been able to stay friends and we've stayed in touch over the years, not very closely, but in touch nonetheless. He has my number, I have his, we speak from time to time, but I hadn't heard from him in, I don't know, about a year. I didn't have his name saved in my phone for some reason. But he called the other day and he sounded like stressed out. And I was like, what's up? What's good? He tells me that he's in a relationship, which I'm like, oh, okay, with a white woman from Utah. And I was like, um, oh, okay, okay, sure, whatever. Like most black folk, he had been antsy about the verdict and the Derek Chauvin trial. And he felt about like I did where he was thinking there could be an acquittal and surprised that there wasn't. The jury came back with the right decision, but he still wasn't happy about the outcome. So he just had a lot of mixed feelings. And he's just like, you know, just thinking about what it means to be a black man in America. And he hadn't heard from his girlfriend all day. 
And she hadn't mentioned nothing about the uh, the Derek Chauvin child. So he calls his girlfriend and he was like, hey, did you did you hear the verdict? And she was like, what verdict? This thing that was top of mind to him. She wasn't even so much as thinking about. So he's like, oh, in, in the Derek Chauvin child. And she's like, oh, well, what happened? So he tells her and she was like, I feel like the cop probably wouldn't have been convicted if George Floyd had been white. I feel like the judge gave in to public opinion. And he was like, what? So he's telling me this or whatever. And he was like, D, I don't think I can date non-black women anymore. He was like, because they really just don't get me as a black man. So I was like, Are you just realized that today? And so he was like, no. And he was like, you know, I realized something was off when I went to Utah to meet old girl's family. And I noticed that a lot of the white women in her family had biracial kids. And she was going on and on about like how cute biracial kids were. And he was like, you know, if you and I had kids, they would be black, not biracial. And she was like, no, they would be biracial because you're black and I'm white. And he was like, okay, technically, but we would have to raise those biracial children as black because that's how the world will see them and they need to know that they're black in order to navigate the world. And she was like, mm, you sound really out of touch. That's not how it is anymore. And I was like, and that wasn't your sign? And he was like, well, it made me uncomfortable. And I was like, well, clearly not, but so uncomfortable because you know, that was what, the holidays? You're still with her. And he was like, all right, fair. So he was like, well, I'm just really frustrated because I don't feel like she really gets me and she really sees me. And like, you know, the conversations that I want to have with her about like really who I am and what it means to be a black man in America, she doesn't really get. And I didn't say anything. So he was like, no, speak. Like, I called you for your opinion. I want to hear what you think. And I was like, yo, I think that you are frustrated by everything that's going on. And I think not being able to have that conversation with your partner is making you more frustrated. And so you're reaching out to your black ex-girlfriend to feel seen and have this connection. And I feel like now that you're emotionally soothed, you're just going to go back to your white girl. And he was like, do you have a problem with me dating a white woman? And I was like, I have no issue with you dating a white woman. Like date all the white women you want, but for love of God, please find one that's woke or at least is trying to be who's done some sort of introspection, who knows something about black people before she gets to you. So you're not in a relationship with someone who's fundamentally missing the essence of who you are. And additionally, I feel like I'm a little frustrated that you're calling me as a black woman to do this emotional labor and to like lean on me in your time of crisis. But like, you don't want to make the effort to be in a relationship with a black woman. And that's just really like disheartening to me. Like you see black women as good enough for emotional support and to like trauma bond with you essentially, but you don't see them as good enough for partnership. And then he goes on to say, and he was like, you know, it's not that I have a preference for non-black women. He was like, black women are just really difficult to approach. He was like, if I go to the grocery store, he was like, a white girl is going to come up to me. She's going to pay me a compliment. She's going to say we should get coffee sometime. She's going to blatantly flirt with me. And he was like, but if I make eye contact with a black woman, she'll look and look away, which I didn't point out to him at the time. But thinking about it later, I was like, but OK, like you don't want to make this effort on the front end with black women because it's easier because white women are easier. 
But you have to do some work on one end or the other. You know, actually making the effort to cross the room for the black girl who won't make eye contact and risk rejection might be easier than being in a whole relationship with someone that you feel like doesn't really see you. So we had this conversation. <clears throat> he told me I sounded like his mom. And I was like, yeah, because she's also a black woman. So to end of the conversation, he didn't know what he was going to do. He knows that he needs to break up with the girl, but he doesn't know if he's going to do it. And I was like, okay, you know, that's your choice, not mine. So, you know, do what you feel with your girlfriend. But, you know, but just be mindful of the things that I expressed in this conversation, especially about calling black women to sympathize and empathize because your girlfriend can't. So he tells me and he was like, I know that you'd like to write about stuff like that. So you can go ahead and share this with your um, with your readers. And I was like, really? I thought we were just having a conversation. It never crossed my mind to use it for content. But I was like, you know what? I think I will write about it. Thanks. So the following day, I write about it. It goes viral quickly. As of right now, it's got like a thousand shares, 2,000 comments. A bunch of people have called me about it. Like my friends read it in their like sorority groups or their girl chats or whatever. Like somebody else posted it and they were like, Lord, let me call Demetria. People called me with all sorts of thoughts and insights. And, you know, most of them had the, pretty much the same reaction I did. Like, if you want to date non-black women, then so be it. But you can't date non-black women and then use black women in your life to fill your emotional voids. You got to take the good with the bad. Like, if your woman can't relate to you and you ha can't have conversations about race and you just feel left out, well, you just need to feel left out. The idea that you cannot want to invest the time, the patience, the status, the title, the finances in a black woman, but you want a black woman to come do your heavy emotional lifting with you, uh-uh. That's not fair. That's not fair to do to any black woman. So he read the story. He doesn't have any objections about the accuracy of it. I think a couple people were able to identify him, which he was pissed about. But I was like, yo, I didn't say anything about your occupation. I gave no physical description. I think a couple people that we went to college with knew we dated or remembered we dated like all these years later. So he was like, well, he was like, well, two people reached out to me and was like, is this about you? And I was like, two out of like over 100,000 people that read it, you got great odds, bruh. And he was like, I didn't expect it was going to go viral. To which I said, uh, he was pissed. And he's a friend. Like, I don't really care for his train of thought on this issue. But we've been friends for like 20 some odd years. And he was like a good dude when I dated him. So like, I have no malice. I have no ill intent toward him. But I really just wanted to be like, do you know what I do? A lot of shit that I write does go viral. It's, it's, I've lost count of how many times it's happened, especially when I talk about my life and dating and relationships. But he was pissed. He was super pissed, which was not my intent. But yeah, but if you want to read the full story for that, I think I covered most of the bases. It's laid out a little more eloquently in what I actually wrote. But yeah, those are my ex's encounters for this week. One pleasant one not so much so and a lot of people were like yo the next time he calls you either bill him or you do not answer the phone because you did way too much in explaining to him what his issues were therapists get paid for that and i was like i just want y'all to know it was all of a 10 minute conversation i'm binging a different world right now i'm at the part where like whitley and Dwayne finally get together so i'm all mushy and gooey inside but it was a 10 minute phone call and I promptly went back 
to my nightly binge of a different world. It did not take too much of my time. Y'all were, some of y'all were very concerned, very concerned. And they were like, look, the podcast better be on time. The merch better be on time. If you got time to sit on this, on the phone with this man and fill the void that his white girlfriend doesn't, you better be on time for everything else this week, Demetria. Y'all were very concerned, very concerned. Like, did you take some self-care after he tried to trauma bond with you? Y'all be so protective of me. I do appreciate it, though. I do appreciate it. What else is going on? Oh, we have a guest this week. Remember last week we talked about Mistress Marley and Pay Pigs, the article that was in the New York Times? Well, Mistress Marley got word that we talked about her on our episode, and she had her people reach out to, not my people, it's me. But she had her people reach out to me. I got a DM on Instagram from her publicist. And he was like, Mistress Marley would like to come on your show. If you missed our chat about Mistress Marley last week, I think it's worth listening to last week's episode. But I also think that you should keep listening to hear what Mistress Marley has to say for herself. The New York Times piece was interesting. She is, if we were writing, it would be one pull quote after another. Fascinating. So just to give you a brief introduction, Mistress Marley, a.k.a. The Chocolate Dom on Instagram, is a New York City-based professional dominatrix that specializes in financial domination and sex education. She's also a play party curator and a supportive mentor of the upcoming doms looking to embark upon a career in the industry. Marley achieved peak viral infamy in 2019 when she caught the attention of 3.5 million viewers in an unforgettable video of her walking her leash sub through North Carolina Central's homecoming event. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome Mistress Marley to Ratchet and Respectable. Mistress Marley, I am very excited to have you on Ratchet and Respectable. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Girl, we talked about you last week, and in all good ways, we saw that article in the New York Times that talked about financial dominatrix, and I didn't even know this existed. How long have you been doing this? Oh, wow. So I've been a financial dominatrix now, I want to say going on two and a half years. It seems like so much longer. When I hear dominatrix, I think of like leather cat suits and whips and chains and like the ball in the mouth and stuff like that. Um, But what is financial dominatrix exactly? So financial domination, um, for short, we call it FINDOM. That's F-I-N-D-O-M. So financial domination is a psychological kink involving a submissive man or a woman Um, giving their money away to the dominant party with either wanting nothing in return or just really wanting their wallet controlled. So it's all psychological and kind of like a mind thing. Girl, how you get into this? (laughs) So I like, I pretty much stumbled into this work. This wasn't something that I was like deliberately searching for. Um, I had just graduated from grad school in New York, was in between jobs, just having a hard time, you know, making money. Um, So I had literally Googled how to make money online as a woman. Like I literally put that in the search bar and a financial domination came up. And so I clicked the link and I read about it and it takes me to Twitter. So if you just go on Twitter alone and put hashtag FinDom, you'll see the whole world of it. And it's kind of like hidden from, we call vanilla people. So people that aren't in the kink world. But if you hashtag it and put it in, you'll see just all these women just taking men's money. Is it that simple? Is it just, uh, well, tell me about the job. What does this require? Because I I think I read that um, one of the perks of it is that you don't have to be 
I guess, face to face. This is not a hands on thing. Like you do all of this via Mm -hmm. like Zoom, Skype, social media. Yeah. So 90 percent of my clients are virtual. So I try to tell people that it's not easy work, but the concept of it can be easy if you really study and do what you're supposed to do. So really, the biggest thing about FinDom is your content, your photos and your videos. Um, And that can just be you taking a picture of you getting a pedicure and saying, hey, reimburse me. I mean, you going out to eat, taking a picture of your receipt, reimburse me. Um, it could be a picture of you doing the loser sign because a lot of fandom is humiliation. So a lot of these submissives want to be just humiliated. They want to feel like they're being walked all over and they're, and we're taking their money and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, so it's really just about your content. So on the um, podcast episode last week, I made a joke and I was like, I like to tell people they ain't shit. And mm-hmm. I can talk real greasy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, and I like I can get paid for this. Like, is that yes. the gist of it? Yeah. So the thing about being a dominatrix in general, like you said, like when you hear dominatrix, you think of the leather cat suits and things of that nature. But what I'm trying to do, more importantly, as a black woman, and what a lot of us are trying to do is reshape what being a dominatrix even is. So I try to tell people all the time, you don't have to own any leather or latex. You can dominate a sub in your sweats. And I, I mean, I've done Skype sessions in my bonnet. So it's really, it's really just about them being humiliated. They just want you to talk shit to them. That's about it. Are you a person who naturally likes to talk shit or did you have to like learn how to be mean? So naturally I'm a sweetheart, but I can also be a smart ass. So my smart ass side helps in this work, but naturally I'm a sweetheart. I'm not really used to talking shit to people just because, but coming into this work, I was able to do it. But you also have some clients that they just want to talk, period. So I try to tell people, like, don't think being a dom is just about being mean. There's nurturing doms. There's doms out there that would tell you you're doing a good job while they're talking to you. Like, it's so many different types of us out there. Like a life coach dom. Yeah. So <laughs> there's like a life coach dom. Um, I know one dom that does like tarot card readings with her subs and tells their future that they're going to spend money on her in the future. And they just love it. And, you know, I know some doms also that are big into video games. And some subs like to just watch them play video games while they spend their money on them. Do you know any any thick doms? There are a lot of thick doms out there. Um, I get questions a lot about, is there BBW? Like, I'm this size. Will this be able to work for me? There is one successful fin dom that is plus size and markets herself as plus size. And her name is King Court. That's King, K-I-N-G, Court with a K on uh, Twitter. And she's so successful. She works a nine to, you know, nine to five. She's able to have two lives. And a lot of us have that, two lives. So what is your other life when you're not being a dominatrix? When I'm not being a dominatrix, I'm just being me. One thing I can say versus like other sex workers that are out there, because being a dominatrix is considered sex work, even though sex isn't happening. So my other normal life is me just hanging out with my friends, going out to eat, partying, traveling. But for the most part, I'm like Mistress Marley in my career. You're a full-time dominatrix? Yes. How much does this pay? The thing about financial domination, there's this thing called tributes. So that's when subs just send you money anonymously so we all have like our cash app links and stuff like that out there in the internet and sometimes you can just get money out of nowhere and you would never know who it comes from so i could have a five thousand dollar day and then some days i could only have a five hundred dollar day so it just varies day by day but i want to say this year well last year i brought in six figures and i mean just even getting booked i can get booked and do a thousand dollars per hour or anything like that just for a simple session because I do also do sessions in person for certain kinks. What sort of kinks do you do in person for? So I like to kick men in the balls. Um, That one is called CBT. Um, That one's very, very much so requested. 
Um, for that one, I charge 900 per hour just to kick them in the balls. I also like verbal humiliation, public humiliation. Some of them like to be walked on a leash. Um, I have subs that literally just want to sit and be ignored. So it's called ignore fetish. So I'll just be on my phone and they'll be trying to talk to me and I'm just ignoring them. I also do like face smothering. I do the whipping. I do the rope tying. So I do all those things. Does your mom know you do this? Yes. So both of my parents know and they're very supportive. (laughs) We actually, the funny thing, the funny thing is if you go on YouTube, there's this um, YouTube content group called Cut. And Cut actually did a truth or drink with me and my parents. And it's hilarious. What do they say? Are they just like, well, you know, girl, be safe. And so that's really their main concern. Their main concern is like, we just want you to be safe. We just want to make sure you have security and that like, that's why I'm so adamant. And I, and I also teach to other people, but that's why I'm so adamant on telling people like you have to have a separate identity for this. You don't want to cross your normal life with this life. Um, so that's why I'm very adamant on everybody just knows me, knows me as Marley. The only people that know my real name are my closest friends. But they're just really concerned about the safety. Other than that, my dad's always making jokes about whipping. Um, I accidentally sent a flogger, which is a whip, to my parents' house from Amazon. And I told my mom to send it back. She was like, I just took it out the box and was starting to use it. So it's oh, like, <laughs> yeah. So we're very just, we're just open. Did you grow up in a very sex positive house? I will say I did not grow up in a very sex positive house. I mean, there was discussions around like, you know, using protection, um, but my mom was very adamant on she really just wanted her girls to wait until marriage. I didn't even tell her I lost my virginity till I was like 19, almost 20. So it's kind of interesting seeing the dynamic now of how open they are, seeing that we didn't really talk about sex positivity openly in our household. What you're describing, how your parents spoke to you is probably the the story of, uh, I think, most Black women. Mm-hmm. We don't get a lot of sexual education from our parents. We right. don't have in-depth conversations. But how did you just be like, well, you know, this is what I do and I'm a dominatrix and I'm free. Like, how do you go from one to the other? So I'm an Aquarius. So naturally we're rebellious. I've always just been into things that my friends were into. I was always into things like, oh, I know this is going to get me in trouble, but I'm going to do it anyway or I'm going to say it anyway. So like, I want to say all through college is when I really started exploring my sexuality. I was more sexual with like the way I dressed, with the way I carried myself, just had like sex appeal, which is very adamant on I'm going to get what I want as a woman in the bedroom. Just really like onto that really early in age. So then when I moved into, you know, being a dominatrix, that's when I came to New York. I moved to New York by myself because I'm originally from North Carolina. Um, I had moved to New York by myself and was just introduced to so many different people. And my first job out of college was a host at a swingers club. That put me onto a whole nother world in which now I even throw my own swinger parties. But when I was there, there was another lady that worked in coat check, an older white woman. And she was talking to me about being a dominatrix and just everything she was saying. I was just like, this is me, you know, through and through. Is there, because I just assume there's a weird racial dynamic in every other field. How does it play out in the dom field? Like, is this all big one happy family or is it like the white doms over here, the black doms over here? How does that work? Within our community, you know, white doms really be out here hating. Prime example, when the New York Times posted my article on Twitter the day it came out, all white doms were under the post promoting themselves under my post about me, about a black woman. They did not apologize so they got called out. And some of these white women were literally sending me money on Cash App trying to apologize. And I'm like, I'm not going to acknowledge y'all because shouldn't have done it in the first place. So it's just dealing with little aggressions like that. When I came into the dom work, you know, I try to look search on my own. I try not to ask too many questions to people. I'm just very about getting it on my own. But I do recall asking some white doms for advice. They would either ignore me. They would be mean. Um, they would, like, even block me. And I said, you know what? I don't want any other black woman starting out in this work to go through this. So then I created Black Dom Sorority. 
So Black Dom Sorority is 150 of us right now. It's Black and Afro-Latina Doms. We're all over the United States. We have people in South Africa and Canada. Um, and it's just a place for us to all come together and have our space, whether we're learning kink. I mean, whether we're just being together, it's truly just a sisterhood. We throw brunches. We do so many things, sort of like a sorority, but just dominant and a little kinky. So is the sorority, does it do classes to like teach women who are interested in getting into Dom work? So the sorority is separate in the sense of you have to be invited. There's inductions. It's kind of like a more of a secret society type thing. But for those that don't want to commit to being in a sorority, because I know some people might just want to learn their own, I teach on Patreon. So I have a thing on Patreon called Sex Academy. It's $5 a month. And I teach how to be like do sex work, how to sell feet pictures, um, how to do fandom, like all of that. So I go like in, it's over like 100 courses and it's only $5 a month. And then I also do in-person classes. So we have, I have a goddess brunch in high tea coming up in Atlanta in June. Pre-COVID, I had taught in DC, Atlanta, New Orleans. I just try to just be hands-on wherever I can be. How do you sell feet pictures? Is there a tip? With selling feet pictures, you just want to see what the market is about. So some people think, oh, well, my toe's not done, so I can't sell feet pictures. But the thing with feet pictures, you'll get requests from men wanting you to put your feet in dirt. Some men don't even want your feet to be done. Some men maybe want you to drizzle chocolate and a video on your feet. Um, so it's really just putting it out there. And I'll say the biggest market to just even sell this type of content, period, is Twitter. Because Twitter is more kinky. Um, a lot of us kinky people stay away from Instagram because Instagram has been deleting us left and right. I mean, just last month, I got deleted at 25K after building my page up. Yikes. Yeah. So that's why my new page, I'm back down at 6,000. But we just tried to stay away from Instagram. Twitter is where it's at, period. What about underwear? This woman was, um, she, she was also a dominatrix. She was emailing me last night. She's, she's also a witch, but she sells her underwear during the full moon. There's websites called like Pan, Panty Deal. Um, there's other websites. You can sell like your underwear. You have some that want used underwear, sweaty underwear, some that want fresh underwear. Um, so you can sell it for just about any price. So that's why like people hear about this stuff and there's like no way. And I'm a living testament. Like, yes, there is a way like you can literally make money. There's so many kinks and fetishes out there. Oh, yeah. Ma'am told me she was selling her dirty drawers for $200 a pop. And I was yeah. like, look, I got dirty drawers. Yeah. It's, what won't you do? What are, the, what are the limits where you're just like, okay, this is, this is my threshold. I don't go beyond this. Or is there no threshold? So I personally don't do blackmail kink. You have some subs that want to send you all their personal information you put out on the internet. That's just a little too iffy for me. And I, in my opinion, can like set you up for something worse. Um, and I also just don't do scat play. So I will not poop on anybody. I just, I can't do it. Will you pee on them? Yeah, I will pee, but I will not, I will not poop on them only because I don't know. Pooping to me is just, I won't do it. I, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. Like I, I can't pee. Like that's not my thing, but I'm like, mm -hmm. I feel like pooping. There's definitely a, a demarcation between yeah. peeing and pooping. Right. I feel you. Yeah. Who's the ideal client? The ideal client for me is somebody who spends their money right away and I don't have to walk through too many instructions because I have all my instructions to book me on my page. And I always, I, you know, I'll get some people that be like, how do I book? That's the client I don't want because you can't even take the time to look at my stuff. So why are you even trying to book with me? So my ideal client is somebody that books right away, someone that sends money weekly, daily is even better. And somebody that spoils me and sends me stuff without me having to direct or ask. You're very direct about this. This is just completely business to you. I am a pro dom. So there's a difference between pro dom and lifestyle dom. So a lifestyle dom is somebody that lives the lifestyle 24 seven. Like for the most part, they don't really mind or care if they're getting paid or not. It's just really in them to be kinky 24 seven. Me, I like to be booked for my sessions, but I also like to do demos and things like that. So 
yes, it's business, but at the same time, I have certain kinks that I love. Like even in my personal relationships, I'm a switch and I have kinks that I like. What are your kinks? So I like spanking. Um, I love like being slapped in the face. I love just, I won't say really verbal humiliation, but I love just being told what to do and being directed. I love being tied up. What else? I love role play. So I love the more, the more calmer things in a way. Yeah. Cause I was like, wait, is that considered kink? Cause I feel like half the audience is like, wait, that's kinky. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of these things, <laughs> yeah. A lot of these things are considered kink. So for those that like to get spanked, you're really practicing impact play. So all these things have names for them. Um, a lot of people just don't really realize it. A lot of folks are just kinky and may not even know it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Cause you brought up a uh, personal relationship. Is dating difficult being a dom? Like how is this received by the people you date? I think dating is difficult being a dom only if the other person is like just ignorant. Um, I try to watch out for certain things. So like, I honestly don't care about your looks or how charming you are if you have negative things to say about sex workers, because I'm a sex worker. So in that sense, you hate me. That's how I look at it. And you know, a lot of them will be like, oh, well, no, you're a dominatrix. You're not having sex with anybody. So you're not a sex worker. I'm like, yes, I'm a sex worker. I'm a sex worker activist. I mean, I was out in these streets last summer, like leading marches for sex workers. When I first go on dates, I don't tell men right away that I'm a dom. So like if I meet somebody from these dating websites, I don't put up there that I'm a dom. I just put my normal stuff. But after a couple of dates, I will mention it. And for the most part, I want to say I haven't had too much problems with that. I think the only thing like on the dates, they try to get like educated. I'm like, I'm not about to teach on a date. But <laughs> other than that, they're like pretty open about it. And I think the reason why um, a lot of them might be pretty open about it is because they see how I'm going about doing it. Um, it's coming from an education standpoint. It's coming from a standpoint of just being very professional with it and business minded and things of that nature. So I think that's why like some of them are like, okay, cool, whatever. Can we talk about walking a white man on a leash? Oh my God. Yeah. Cause that's where I think a lot of people know you from. Yeah. When I posted the, um, the article on my, my personal Facebook page, people were like, no, no, no. I remember this. Like she walked a white man on the leash at homecoming. And I was like, wait, what? How did that come to be? Yeah, so that video or that whole moment just changed my life. So this was 2019, right before COVID. It was our last homecoming. And it was at North Carolina Central where I went. And I remember I was going to homecoming, hadn't planned this, but I had got on this website called FetLife. So it's basically a kinky Facebook for people that want to meet other kinky people. And I posted on FetLife, you know, coming to North Carolina, looking to walk a sub on a leash, public humiliation, whatever. So a sub reached out. He was like, I would love for you to walk me on a leash during your homecoming. I was like, okay, cool. Um, so it was an older white man and he was so excited that day. So we just, I decided to walk him on a leash when I knew it was going to be a lot of people. So that was when there was doing like the um, tailgating and stuff for the football game. And we get there and to me, I'm still in session. So I still was talking to him like it was one-on-one session. Um, I was putting the leash on him. The leash could not fit around his neck because it was so fat. That's why it's on his wrist in the video. So I just remember walking him and the looks on people's faces were like, crazy and there was people like trying to talk to me and figure out what's going on but mind you I'm still in session still very professional like this is a person that has paid me for a session so I still have to be in session mode what does being in session mode mean being in session mode is called being in your dom space or your top space so it's really just nothing else matters all that matters is that the person that I'm dominating is comfortable um they're not hurting they're not in any pain I know their hard limits I know they're safe words. I know things of that nature. So you really still have to be focused in because anything can happen or go wrong. And you want to make sure that consent is still being practiced. That's the biggest thing in kink. So that video that's actually that everybody saw, I didn't know that video was being taken. So what you see me posing for is for my best friend's phone. But I didn't know someone on the side was uh, taking a video. So after the session was over, you know, he goes home 
And me and my friends continue, continue homecoming. We get drunk. We go back to our Airbnb. We fall asleep. I wake up in the morning. I go on my Twitter and it's just all these followers. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? The girl put on the video, she brought her sugar daddy to homecoming on a leash. But that's when I retweeted it and commented. I was like, that's not my sugar daddy. That's my sub that pays me to do this to him. And that's what went viral. Did the guy know he went viral? Yeah, so he knew. He even was like hit me up on like Kick Messenger because all my subs I talk to on Kick, they don't get my real phone number. He hit me up on Kick Messenger and he was just like, you're killing it. I'm so just proud that I was on your leash. I'm going to do it again. We're blowing up on the internet. Like he was going in. (laughs) Does he have a day job? I don't know. The thing about most of this stuff with kink, you don't really try. We don't really try to get into each other's personal lives, you know, because a lot of us are practicing like consent and just being real like incognito and stuff so i don't know that information about him but he was happy about it he was in love wonderful great yeah. I'm, consent is a beautiful thing great. yeah yeah great what did it feel like walking a white man on a leash because i think i would feel like super empowered i feel like i would have like the zest of my ancestors like yeah. just- literally what you're saying is how i felt like i just felt so powerful i felt so just like this is what i've been meant to do my whole life <laughs> it was changing people's perspective. You can just see the look on people's faces. I'm like, I'm really shaking up the status quo. Like, I'm really just shaking up what people, you know, aren't used to. And I'm just having a great time. Are most of your clients white men? Yes. I'm going to say 98%. Is that intentional? No. They just hit me up. They just booked me. I think they like the fact of, like, we call it black femme supremacy. Um, so I think they just like to be controlled by a black women. I mean, even some of my subs, I make them do like history lessons. I make them like research things about black women and give me research papers and stuff like that. So it's, it's just, it's a lot. It's great though. I love it. What do you get out of this besides money? The feeling of power, the feeling of having control, the feeling of overall just loving kink. Also, even with some of my clients just changing their lives, like the reviews I've gotten from people that were depressed. And then after having a session with me, like mentally, they were feeling great. Even when I throw like my parties and stuff, people that hit me up, like, you know, I'm so glad you created this space for black people just makes us feel safe and things of that nature. So I just get a thrill from everything. I get a thrill from dominating and humiliating them and kicking them in the balls. (laughs) I get a thrill from me changing their lives and them just having a great session because I'll get some subs. It's their first time. So their first introduction is me. Um, So just really just forming these different connections and things of that nature. I think I love. Does it ever affect your personal life in the sense that, I don't know, once you get used to like having power and, and telling people what to do, is it ever hard to turn it off in other areas? No, I don't think so. Um, I will say, like, besides being dominant in my pro-dom work, I'm very dominant in business and what I want. And even when I'm doing things with people, such as like hosting events or people want to collaborate or things of that nature, I tell people this is what I will do and won't do. Or whatever, but I'm also very good at adjusting. I don't feel like I always have to be in someone's face saying, do this right now. Like, I feel like I can still, you know, be very much so normal. I'm very much so still a sweetheart. Um, I'm just good at adjusting and I allow this pro dom work not to really control my whole life because, you know, I take even safe spaces for myself. I do self care. I do, you know, I relax. I like candles. I do manifestations. I do things that I like to do. And I try to tell people that's the biggest thing is it's okay to step away from this work. What are the challenges at the job? The time wasters. And I think that's any job. I mean, you'll get mm-hmm. some people, right? You'll get some people that just be like, I want to book with you. And then they just want to talk your head off. And then you just block them because you know they're not going to book. So we all deal as like sex workers, whether you're a stripper, 
OnlyFans girl, Cam girl, Dominatrix, we all deal with time wasters in some sense. We all deal with men trying to get services for free. So it's like, whatever. What's the end game? Like, what are you, is this, is this a forever thing? Is this a, until I reach a certain financial threshold thing or? If I can do this work up until I'm 90 and bent over, I will be doing it. <laughs> but for me, the end game is really to just continue building safe spaces for Black women. It's like the Goddess Brunch coming up. It's an empowerment thing. It's just talking to Black women about just being dominant in any sense, whether you're pro-dom or whether you're in sex work or not. But my end goal is to build a dungeon for Black doms to have a space where they can make content, where they can hang out, where they can do sessions, where they can just have a space for them. So I think that's really my end game. And I've been working on that this year. So hopefully it'll be, you know, pretty much finished pretty soon. I know nothing about this world. You have given <laughs> me such an enlightening education today. Reparations. Oh, yes. What is reparations work? So I'm very big on incorporating reparations in my work. So to me, it's all about the subs are going to pay me and it's reparations. I mean, I've had subs reach out on their own say and like pay me and say, I apologize for my whole race. Um, I remember when the whole, you know, last summer with the situation with George Floyd and so many white people donating money to all these causes, um, they were even donating to Black Dom Sorority and saying, like, please, like, we're so sorry for the dumbness of our race and things of that nature. So whenever I can incorporate reparations into my work, I do it because I feel like as a Black woman, and especially as a strong Black woman, I'm owed everything I could possibly want in this world. Yes, you are, Mistress Marley. Mm -hmm. Yes, you Thank are. You. <laughs> Is there anything I haven't asked you about? Should you think it's important for my listeners to know? Aside from my Dom work, I do throw uh, sex parties and play parties for the Black and Afro-Latina community. And that series is called Black and Kinky. That was something I created off of just, you know, working at a swingers club because the swingers club I worked at was white. And I'm like, how can I bring this to people that look like me and people that are interested in these things, but don't feel like they have a safe space to come and do it? So I created Black and Kinky. And we just had a three-day weekend retreat in the Poconos um, this past weekend. So that was crazy. Um, what is what does that look like? Because I've never been to a swingers party. Fill, fill us in for those who, has, who don't know. Swingers is usually just couples. But at my parties, I have single men, single women, and couples. What I can say at my parties, I'm very, very big on consent. And I'm very, very big on you do not have to do nothing you don't want to do. So there are people that come to the parties just to watch. That's called voyeurism. They can watch if they want to. There are people that just want to chill, hang out, and drink. There are people that want to network with other people. Some people might want to get spanked. Some people might want to have sex or threesomes or whatever type of pleasure you're into. Some people might just want to solo masturbate in their rooms to themselves. It's kind of just like a self-care retreat for people that are sex positive. What I've always envisioned is like a big room, open air orgy sort of thing, and everyone's just doing whatever. But there's like private rooms and sections. And... Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what about the people who want to watch? Like, where are they watching? They can watch with consent from whoever they're watching. Oh, okay. So usually they'll walk. And the biggest thing is always asking, even if you're just going to touch, say if you're a man and you're just going to touch a woman on her thigh, even to ask, like, can I touch? Like, I'm very big on that. Even with women um, wanting to touch a man, ask, can I touch? That's the biggest thing about it. Because you don't want anyone to come to these parties and be weirded out or creeped out. And you also don't want creeps at these parties. But once everyone gets comfortable and there's alcohol and people are just having a good time and having conversations or whatnot, it's just a fun time. Look at Black folks getting free. Okay. With consent. <laughs> That's the important part. Where can people find more information about you if they want to enroll in your sorority or they want to take your Vimo, uh, not Vimo Patreon class, classes or they just want to follow you on Twitter? They can follow me on Instagram, which is chocolate dom, D-O-M-M-E, back up. So B-A-C-K-U-P. 
Um, I'm also on Twitter. Twitter's where I post more of like my explicit stuff and the things I can't post on Instagram. On Twitter, I'm eyes, like your eyes, E-Y-E-S-X-O-N fire. So eyes on fire with an X in the middle. And then to learn from me, I'm on patreon.com slash sexcademy. That's S-E-X-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And all these things where you come on my Instagram or whatever, it's in the link in my bio. Perfection. Thank you, Mr. Smiley. You have been a pleasure and a joy. Girl, I had so many questions. I could, this interview could have gone on for a whole hour. I love how about her business that she is. She's very much a businesswoman. Financial domination or, or being a dominatrix is just the industry of choice. She strikes me as a woman who would be equally as business-oriented no matter the industry. That was, that was a fun interview for me. So that is the episode for this week. If you have not picked up your Don't Waste Your Pretty merchandise, that is still on the site. We have hoodies for 20% off. The hoodies are still on sale till the end of the month. I said I was going to stop selling them in the middle of the month, but y'all still buying them, so I'll keep them up. They're also the Don't Waste Your Pretty t-shirts. We have them in pink and red and white and gold. All sizes are currently in stock. We also have the mugs for Don't Waste Your Pretty, which are also 20% off. So if you've not picked up your Don't Waste Your Pretty merch, please head to DemetriaLLucas.com so you can have your cute stuff for this summer or now. It's hot in some places, but it still gets cold at night. We're not in full summer mode just yet. So those Don't Waste Your Pretty hoodies still come in handy. So that is it for this week. We still didn't cover Bobby Brown on Red Table Talk because I still haven't watched it. I'll get around to it so we could talk about it. But otherwise, I think that's everything for this week. So we will talk again on Tuesday. Okay, bye.